This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to the Publishers Weekly Radio podcast on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We are bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here from you and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to at pubweeklyradio, that's pub WKLY Radio on Twitter. Today we'll be talking with Stephanie Ivanovich, whose debut novel Big Girl Panties just hit the PW bestseller list. Then Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald will give us the lowdown on San Diego Comic Con. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So on nonfiction, I, I'm seeing uh, you know, the last couple of weeks has been pretty static, and I'm seeing uh, one, two, three, four books on the list that are uh, pretty interesting. The first one, landing at number four, is by Matthew Berry. He's an ESPN personality, and the book is called Fantasy Life, the hilarious, obsessive, uplifting, and heartbreaking world of fantasy sports. Now, this is a book, I mean, you think there's, you know, there's sports books, there's celebrity bios, uh, there's histories, sure. and you, you often see the celebrity bios making it, but one thing that has been growing increasingly every year in sports, in all sports, is fantasy sports. And um, Matthew Berry has a great personality. He's kind of, as we say in a review, he's, he's laid back yet witty. And um, he, he kind of just like recreates the atmosphere of uh, fantasy sports players and, and kind of tells it in this book. So you don't have to be a professional analyst to, uh, to talk about sports. You kind of have to be a fan uh, of sports and a fan of, um, uh, of fantasy sports. No, no, I have, I have to back you up here. I've never understood the whole fantasy sports thing. Like, I've never been, I don't even really understand how it works. Can you give, like, the, the two-second capsule explanation? Sure. Because as far as I can tell, it's just people sort of writing some stuff down and then being very excited about it. <laughs> well, yes, basically, there's a whole way where you, uh, for, for any any given sport, you draft players, um, uh, and, and there's a way that you, 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 you join, you, you draft players, and you don't just pick whoever you want on your team. And in some, some fantasy leagues, you can. But you draft players, you pick them, uh, you rank them, and they are players from pretty much any team. So you may have in football, for instance, a quarterback from, let's say, the Patriots with a running back from the Chiefs or something, and you'll put them together. So you're really at any game, when you're watching sports, you're following the player, not necessarily the team. So the team can win uh, – but that may not help you in your game. Uh, it's if your player does well. And all the players together, you look at the whole week of sports uh, for that season, and, or I'm sorry, for that week, and that's how well, that's, that determines how well you played. Oh, I see. So if you're, if you're doing some sort of fantasy baseball and uh, you know, a, your player hits a home run, then in your fantasy world, that player has also hit a home run for your team. 
Exactly. Got it. Exactly. So you become it just kind of heightens the uh, the fandom of of sports for some people where merely watching isn't enough and and it's it's and they are obsessed. So that and that's it number 4. Number 7 is uh a book called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is by Reza Aslan. It came up from Random House. We reviewed it in uh, our religion uh, uh, reviews. And this is Aslan. She co-authored a book, which really got a lot of, of acclaim, uh, called God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam. And here she's making a case to to look at, uh, to look at Nazarene, to look at uh, Jesus, how the man involved into Jesus Christ. And we gave it a star review, and this is at number seven on our, on our list. And uh, just, just going back to number three, I, 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 a book called The Town, Two Parties and a Funeral, plus Plenty of Valet Parking in America's Gilded City. This is by Mark uh, Leibovich. He's the national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. And this book is basically about Washington, D.C. and the politics of D.C., the politics and media. And he starts off his book with... Um, uh, the death and the funeral of Tim Russert. Uh, he's you know, newsman Tim, Tim Russert. And how uh, during this event, it's, it's more than a fu- funeral for all these politicos. This is a time for people to see other people, to pass along cards, and this really, you know, business cards, and this really kind of opens up, you know, sets the uh, stage for, uh, for Washington, D.C., for, again, for the politicians, the media, and, um, and at one point uh, in, in the publicity material, it says, you'll always have lunch in this town again, going contrary to that. You'll never have lunch in this town again, where even the most frowned upon and disgraced aides and politicians will always have a lunch at a, uh, at a table there. At number 20, we have a pretty intriguing title. It's called, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Heaven, or in parens, How I Made Peace with the Paranormal and Stigmatized Zealots and Cynics in the Process. And this is a book by Corey Taylor, who is actually best known for uh, being the lead, lead singer for Slipknot and Stone Sour. And in this book, he kind of takes a look at, um, at, at his journeys into ghost-busting teams, into detecting paranormal uh, um, uh, uh, evidences of paranormal activity elsewhere. And he really goes into this, and he and he. And he Brings readers right into this. This is something he enjoys, and and uh, you know, with so many uh, TV programs on, it's, it's not surprising that this is. Well, actually, maybe it is a little surprising anyway that this has landed uh, in number twenty in this week's uh, bestseller list. So, does he approach it as a skeptic, as a believer? It, it it's a little hard to tell from that irreverent title. Yeah, and and he does take a humorous look at it, but for the most part, it seems that he he uh, take he he looks at you know, he takes a look into it as a believer. And the jacket of this is is this uh, uh, the, a photo of him and what looks to be I can't tell from from this uh, image I'm looking at like a in a Civil War era looking uh, uh, costume, uh, and and the type looks like one of those old brownish uh, photos from the uh, late 19th century. Uh, Something that perhaps one might be uh, like a spirit that someone might be conjuring uh, in a seance or, or perhaps might be uh, in, you know, inhabiting a house or something, the spirit of which. So That's fascinating. Well, it sounds worth like, uh, like it's worth taking a look, even if somebody uh, is coming at it from a skeptical perspective, um, maybe just worth it for the humor. 
Yes, exactly. And I think he has a really entertaining approach to this. So, so Rose, fiction, how's it looking? So it finally happened. Uh, not one but two books have knocked Dan Brown's Inferno off of the number one spot on our hardcover fiction bestseller list. Uh, the new number one is The English Girl. This is a novel by Daniel Silva. And it's a thriller starring Gabriel Alone, who is uh, his, his Israeli thriller protagonist. Uh, in this case, uh, it's about a young British woman who vanishes on the island of Corsica uh, and all of the political intrigue that follows and uh, obviously this is a number one new york times best-selling series uh we didn't even review this title it's it's again it's another one of those thrillers where if you know you you like his work then you know you like his work uh, but i have seen a couple of reviews elsewhere saying that this is actually a good starting point even if you're not familiar with the rest of the series so if you're a fan of those international spy thrillers um then this might be a good one to pick up. And I've noticed a, uh, several that we've talked about, or at least that I've seen on the list, uh, have b- taken place in Italy uh, or in Italian islands or once Italian islands. Mm-hmm. And it seems uh, kind of interesting. I've, I've read uh, uh, Andrea Camilleri's uh, 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 Inspector Montalbano series that Penguin publishes, which all take place in Sicily. And I know Donna Leon also has her thrillers that take place in Venice. So I, I just kind of neat to see uh, uh, Italy getting some some traction on on the scene. That's true. I I think I tend to think of thrillers uh, as being in some ways a very American genre. In that American authors are really the ones uh, writing a lot of them. Though uh, in recent years we've seen some come from outside the U.S. as well. Um, and American readers are certainly very into them. But part of the fun of it is the sort of thrill of traveling to uh, other locales where you might not get a chance to go yourself, and you can you can live vicariously through these people who hobnob at the highest political levels and, you know, live very fancy lives and um, go off to all these exciting places. Yeah, so. this is true. This is true. This is what the enjoyment I get out of them do. Yeah, you get to go to Italy without ever leaving your chair. <laughs> exactly. And at number two on the fiction list is Danielle Steele's First Sight. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it's a Danielle Steele novel. It's the novel with romantic elements, one of those women's fiction books that's, that's like right on the, the romance or fiction line. Um, and there's some suspense, some heartstring tugging. Um, in this case, it's a, about a, an iconic designer um, whose name is Timmy O'Neill. I, I've been fascinated recently by how many romance novels I see where the female protagonists have very masculine names or gender neutral names and especially they have uh, nicknames so I saw one with, where there's a woman named Charlotte but everyone calls her Charlie um, and in this case it's a woman named Timmy uh, with an IE uh, and so she's nearing 50 she laments never having found a worthy romantic partner um, and she uh, eventually meets and bonds with a married doctor in Paris so there's another bit of mm, international right. travel we'll for you uh, and uh, you know the the two of them sort of struggle with their relationship and their history uh, while going through this period of later life, and and it's again kind of unusual to see uh, a, a romantic heroine who's fifty years old, uh, a romantic hero of a of a similar age. Uh, we describe him as a, a silver fox, and. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a little refreshing, and there are definitely a lot of older women out there who read books like this who will be delighted to be able to see themselves in uh, in these particular characters. 
That's First Sight by Daniel mm-hmm. Steele at the number two spot on the fiction list. And then there were just a couple of books that we talked about last week. I mentioned that I was expecting to see Terry Brooks's Witch Wraith on the bestseller list, and indeed there it is at number 12. Um, it's been 36 years since the publication of The Sword of Shannara. It's a really long time to be keeping a fantasy novel series going, but he's just going and going and going and going. There's still elves and druids, and they're still swiping away at evil creatures, and um, yeah, it's, it's certainly got its devoted fans, because uh, every, every Terry Brooks novel reliably hits the bestseller list. Uh, and you know, PW's review is not terribly complimentary, I have to say. We, we said, diehard fans may savor these inflated chronicles, but others will find themselves helplessly stranded in watered-down Tolkien country. Ooh, wow. We, we could have said incredibly terrible things about it. It wouldn't have made any difference at all. If you're a fan of the series, you're following it through the end. Sure, sure. And there's no sense, I think, of when the end is likely to be. Brooks has been uh, writing these novels for a very long time. I think the most recent ones he's been releasing every six months or every year, uh, and, and he's just happy to keep on doing it. And finally, uh, the other book that we talked about last week was, of course, The Cuckoo's Calling by Robert Galbraith, a.k.a. J.K. Rowling. Um, that's at number 20 on our fiction list this week. Uh, I'm actually surprised it's not higher but because we were hearing a lot of crazy numbers about you know, how many people were ordering it and uh, how how far it, the sort of reach had gone. But I actually wonder if, if the news about it, you know, Galbraith being Rowling's pseudonym maybe didn't reach all that far outside of our little book world. I and mean, everybody mm-hmm. we know is buzzing about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean the public at large is all that aware of it. That said, the book is worth reading on its own. Publishers Weekly gave it a starred review uh, and said that uh, it stars a compelling sleuth and an equally well-formed and unlikely assistant uh, confronted with a baffling crime in this stellar debut. Um, We say that uh, readers will hope to see a lot more of this memorable sleuthing team. So that's uh, definitely worth reading just as a Robert Galbraith novel and perhaps also as a J.K. Rowling novel as many, many more people will have discovered this week. Yeah, and I think we even reported, uh, we, we talked to a couple of booksellers in the magazine about this, and there was concern because their they, publishers weren't able to get books out immediately or enough books that uh, there was concern that that uh, readers would download it or maybe order it and not really, you know, once a week or two have, has gone by, not to, uh, the interest would die down a little bit since the books weren't available, especially this was a concern for the bookstore. So I don't know if any of that has reflected in the numbers, uh, why it's 20 and not any higher, or maybe it's just that it's a different, it's, it's a completely different subject that even if you are a, a JK Rowling fan may not be interested in this specific subject, but it's still a pretty nice number of 20. So this kind of gives the lie to the idea that Rowling uh, leaked the news uh, that Robert Galbraith was her pseudonym. I think a lot of people had said uh, maybe since her sales weren't that good for the book, um, she had engineered it so that the word would get out and then more people would buy it. But I think that generally, if you're going to do something like that, then you probably want your publisher to have a couple warehouses of books sitting around just ready to be shipped out and sold. And uh, in 
that's clearly not what's happening here. Um, if the publisher is scrambling to get books printed and get them into stores, into the hands of people who want them. Uh, that said, I also don't know how Nielsen counts orders uh, for, for these books. I mean, if you order the book and you pay money for it and you're just waiting for it to come in and be available and be shipped to you, I would think that would count as a sale for the purposes of the bestseller list. But I'm not the person putting them together, so I don't know. Anyway, that's the highlights of the fiction list for this week. Uh, and uh, I actually haven't seen uh, the, the list of titles that are coming out next week, so I don't have any predictions for you this week. But uh, it'll be, as always, an interesting adventure to see what's ranking up and what's uh, not doing so well. Yes, and we've had a couple of uh, pretty interesting titles on both our lists this week, so we'll see what happens next week. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Chris Fox. This is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Stephanie Ivanovich will tell us about writing about love at every size. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Stephanie Ivanovich with us. Her debut novel is Big Girl Panties, in which a personal trainer helps a grieving widow lose some pounds and win his heart. Thanks so much for joining us, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Big Girl Panties is your first novel. And as we say in our review, it's, a, it's about a spirited, large woman who breaks out of her shell in a thin, obsessed world. So could you tell us a little bit about your book? Well, um, as you know, as you mentioned, it is my debut novel. Um, obviously, it's, you know, as my first book, it's the story probably closest to my heart. I actually have been involved with personal training for probably over 10 years now. I started in an effort to try and holistically treat a rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis. And I uh, kind of just burned off of... Uh, my own trials and tribulations with uh, trying to get myself fit and healthy. And what inspired the main character, Holly Brennan, who was widowed at, at age 32? You know, I didn't want to make it like a um, an autobiographical. It is it is a novel designed to entertain. But I, I thought I had to get her, you know, I wanted her to be available and single, and uh, as a character developed, as I worked there, that's kind of where she ended up. You get into the details of the personal training sessions. I mean, the descriptions are, are really evocative. Um, so you said that that's based on your own history with that. Have you um, been a personal trainer, or this is your experience sort of on the other side of the mat, on the getting fit side? Oh, I'm not a personal trainer. I just use them. And, um, you know, I've always liked to have fun. Like, you know, I, I sort of developed this attitude when my children were small that, you know, this wasn't a dress rehearsal and uh, I need to enjoy and celebrate my life. And I really thought that with the diagnosis of RA, I mean, it was pretty serious. And they had me on some pretty expensive medications that um, had some really bizarre side effects. So I just wanted to try and, and see if I could get healthy another way. And um, my trainers, I've had about seven trainers. Um, you know, I, I never thought of training with a woman because I have a romantic side. And boys are fun. So it's got to just be, uh, you know, my way of life. Once you get past the awkwardness of, uh, you know, having somebody literally watch you through an entire workout. 
Because if a trader's doing it right, he's watching you the whole time. He's not doing anything else. He's making sure you're getting the most out of the exercise. And uh, being that I didn't have to count my own reps, my mind was free to wander and did. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's very physical in, in a sense that uh, sounds like it might be very appropriate for a romance novel. Yeah, I, I thought it was sort of a natural course. I mean, those are the easiest parts to write, actually. I do have to say that I really don't let it, uh, I don't really let my trainers stretch me. I came from a martial arts background, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we did extensive stretching. And I had one trainer who said, yeah, I can stretch if you want. He goes, but that's another 10 minutes that we could be working out. And I really, like, appreciated that logic. Mm-hmm. So now whenever it happens, I'm like, no, no, I could, I could stretch myself. But the and, few times that I did get stretched, I was like, wow, this is really close quarters. <laughs> it's very intimate, yeah. Um, and you mentioned yes, your, martial, your martial arts background. Um, I saw that you're a Taekwondo black belt, and I was also I wondering am. how that uh, sort of inspired your writing. So this is specifically about health and, and fitness and strength, because it's, you know, this, this is not like a, a getting thin narrative, this book. It's about a getting healthy narrative. Absolutely, and, I, and, and that was very deliberate. Because I've always been um, a larger woman myself, mm-hmm. and as I was growing up, I was still doing all the things that my, you know, thinner friends could do, and I couldn't really understand, like, the whole, I'm not healthy, like, we're sort of given that assumption that if you're not, you know, under a certain number on the BMI, that you're not healthy. And that's not true. And the older I get and the more people I meet, I really, it's such an added benefit to have that message come across in in, in just an entertaining novel. Um, A lot of people have, have written to me and said that Holly touched them. And that's, that's a real nice thing. And if I can push that message, I think that's a good message. you got to celebrate yourself today. And you only do that by taking care of yourself. Yeah, so in some ways, it's a very political book, almost. I mean, you're, you're writing about a very touchy topic. Uh, and so it's, it's good to hear that you've gotten a lot of positive feedback on your approach to that. Well, thank you. And it's, and it's true. I, I, you know what? I've been sort of on the end of it my whole life. So, you know, the, the political sting is something that I've long since gotten used to. Um, you know, I tried to be an actor for about 30 years before I finally gave up and finished Big Girl Panties. And, um, you know, in the industry, that, that attitude is rampant. Right. And, um, and it's the wrong one. And it's the wrong message that we're sending. I, personally, I, I think it's the wrong message we're sending to our young women of the future that, you know, it's all about, you know, a number on a scale, and, and it's really not, and it shouldn't be. Now, working out with a personal trainer without takes a lot of discipline, uh, especially at times when, when you least want to do it. And, and I think that in ways writing uh, could be the same thing. How do you Uh-oh. approach your writing? How did you approach writing this book? You know, I really just, I, I wanted to stay creative. I did a lot of community theater. Like I said, I was trying to make the acting dream happen, and it really wasn't. And, of course, there were spans of time that I took off because, you know, I was raising my children, and I was lucky enough that, you know, my husband saw the importance in me wanting to be home, so he was willing to do whatever it took to keep us, you know, financially afloat. Um, I would do a lot of community theater, um, 
and it, until you get like your big part, you're sitting around a lot waiting for your three lines in Act Two. So I would like to keep creative, and you know, I, I knew it was a craft that you have to practice for a long time, and I sort of did. Um, and the story came together when I realized, you know, the acting thing just isn't going to happen. Um, but I still want to entertain. And, um, you know, that was my shot. I thought, I'll take this one more shot. And it turned out to be the best, you know, the best risk I ever took, <laughs> currently. And did acting or your work in theater influence your writing in any way? Very much so. In fact, all my character development, I can probably thank acting for. Um, once you develop the characters and you really get them down, um, then they just sort of act on their own, and the story kind of flows from there. So we gave the book a starred review in Publishers Weekly, um, saying... You did. Thank you so much. Oh, well, I, well done you for, for writing a book that earned it. Um, yeah, it's, oh, well, it, I really appreciate it. Those are very kind words, and they touched me, actually, so... Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. like a dream come true. Um, so I was going to ask, you know, other reviews have been glowing, too. Um, what's it been like for you to get those reviews for your very first book? You know, it it is just the icing. I know you, you you throw that phrase around a lot, but it is just really the icing on just about the tastiest cake ever. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I I have two more books that I have to write for William Morrow. Um, this whole experience from beginning to end. You know, I went into it with. Uh, very little knowledge, but an open mind and an open heart, and that has really um, yielded some wonderful results. Just unbelievable, almost almost undeserved. Like no one deserves to be so fortunate. Um, I am honored, and you know it, it's really humbling, actually. Um, Boy, I hope I can follow up with the next one. <laughs> that's the only pressure I think is that wow, I've got to write another one, and uh, that's a that's a pretty big follow up I got going there. So, <laughs> well, savor this moment as you can. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, every day I, I told my um, I, I told someone that I I'm, I'm running out of places to pinch myself. And their recommendation was to start, you know, pinching bystanders and, of course, being a romance writer, I thought, oh, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I do a lot of pinching myself, and, and I, you know, without getting religious on anybody, I, I really thank God every day that um, I've been so fortunate this far. Your aunt is Janet Ivanovich. What's it like starting out in the same field where a relative of yours is already famous and successful? Well, you know, it's almost like I, I I don't even think about it because, you know, Janet, my aunt, is she's an icon. Like, I'm not qualified to sweep up behind her. So I don't even really, I, I, there's no way to even get me to think of ways to compare because she's just amazing and she's focused and you know, an excellent writer, and um, I could only hope 20 years later to be half the person that she is. She's amazing. Well, Stephanie, um, thank you so much for joining us on the radio today. It's been really great to talk with you about this. Um, and it was such a pleasure. Uh, a pleasure for us, too, and I certainly hope those good reviews keep coming in. 
Yeah, that would be nice. And thank you again for yours. Like I said, I, I, I think about you guys a lot over at Publishers Weekly. They're like, you're, you're like my new best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> thank you so much. We've been talking with Stephanie Ivanovich. You can find her novel, Big Girl Panties, in stores right now and also on PW's bestseller list. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Week Radio. Next up, PW Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald will give us a report from San Diego Comic-Con, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald is here to tell us all about San Diego Comic-Con. Hello, Heidi. Hey there, Rose. Hey, Mark. How's it going? It's going pretty well. So uh, what's the news from California? Well, the news is uh, everybody is in recovery mode. Um, we are just trying to regain our senses after a five-day uh, mega blast of pop culture uh, in your face everywhere. People, giveaways, Walking Dead, zombies, uh, pirate ships, uh, and even a few comic books. Mm. Well, can you give us a little description of to what you know the Comic-Con in San Diego is like? Uh, walk us through the aisles. <laughs> well, that would take a, a you know a long time, but uh, you know Comic Con's been running for over forty years. It started out as a few uh, hundred people gathering in the basement of a hotel, and uh, I believe one of the first guests was Ray Bradbury. And uh, then over the years, it grew and grew and grew, just in a perfect ascending line. Uh, so this year, 130,000 people came. But there was even more outside. They sell tickets to it, which sell out in like an hour. Um, but there's so many off-site events now that, I mean, they, they literally had like Viking ship racing and, and pirate ships where you got shaved and giant balloons and, um, Godzilla ride. I, there was so much to do outside the actual convention. But once you got inside, uh, there was more zombies and pirates, <laughs> Uh, but also, as, as I said, some some comics. Uh, all of the major and many of the minor co- comics companies set up there, and uh, it's really the greatest comic show in North America. So you okay. say this is 130,000 people. That's that's amazing. And, and has it been growing steadily, or, or have there been kind of ebbs and flows of uh, popularity and population? Well, it's been sold out for five or six years, so it's been uh, steady uh, in terms of of the actual attendance for, I believe, about six or seven years. However, because the convention center itself is full and you can't get any more exhibits in there, um, people have spread out. As I say, every parking lot, every hotel lobby, uh, meeting room, they are now crammed with video games and uh, movie displays and uh, Legos. They had a Lego hobbit hole there. That was amazing. Uh, so there's actually a lot more than 130,000 people who come. I mean, it has to be at least 150,000. I mean, there were so many people. I've been going for many, many years, and this was the most crowded I've ever seen it since. Um, it's, it's sensor shattering. I mean, it really is. Uh, it's only comparable to South by Southwest, the Cannes Film Festival, Sundance, and the Super Bowl, all got crammed into And us. You know, the, uh, just to give uh, some idea of the stars who were there, uh, Tom Cruise, Harrison Ford, Angelina Jolie, Sandra Bullock, uh, 
um, I mean, you name it, uh, German Hunsu, uh, Benicio del Toro, uh, Chris Evans, Chris Pratt, uh, Ro- um, Rosaria Dawson, um, Therese, uh, Zoe Saldana. I mean, it just goes on. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The whole cast of True Blood, the whole cast of Game of Thrones, the whole cast of Dexter, yada, 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 yada. I mean, everybody is there. So. <laughs> And there are Comic Cons in other cities too. So it, is this is it all sort of part of one conglomerate, or are, are they all independent entities? Um, well, I, I was, you know, this is kind of the Ur Comic Con, you might say. You know, the Gilgamesh uh, of Comic Cons. So, I mean, New York has a huge Comic-Con. They're all owned by separate uh, entities. Pretty much every city has its own Comic-Con throwing committee. Um, The people who put on Comic-Con also throw WonderCon in Anaheim and Ape in San Francisco, and which are also wonderful shows. But uh, this year, uh, we've been writing about this quite a bit in Publishers Weekly, that Comic-Con culture is absolutely on the rise. I mean, many shows are sold out now. New York Comic-Con is expected to sell out. Um, the Denver Comic Con sold out. Uh, Calgary sold out. Uh, I mean, just all over North America, people are flooding to these events. And you know, at 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 uh, San Diego, just past, I, I walked out at night uh, from to walk between hotels out in back of the convention center, and there was like two thousand people camped out. Uh, wow. The, the, yeah, I mean, it was like a tent city, and. Although they're not allowed to have tents, but I mean, they all had chairs and sleeping bags and, you know, they're sleeping on their convention bags as a pillow. And <laughs> they were all lined <laughs> they were lined up to see Breaking Bad panel, uh, Doctor Who and Supernatural. And to me, this is like, well, why on earth would uh, anyone do this? Uh, I mean, I guess if you, right, right. You know, I guess if you're young, it's a fun adventure. But then I thought about it and I, I kind of I started talking to some of them who were in line and I, I began to understand a little bit more. Uh, you know, it's a sense of connection with fandom. I mean, if you like Doctor Who, which awful lot of people do, mm-hmm. uh, this is a way to really connect with your fandom. You know, to be in the room with the stars, with the uh, with the creators. And these big panels all take place in Hall H, which holds over 6,000 people. I did not go into Hall H this year. I have been in years past a few times, but it, it's very evident that movie studios and production companies are becoming very savvy about the theater of having all these people in this hall. Like this year for the Marvel panel, they had Tom Hiddleston, who plays Loki, come out in his Loki costume and to the panel and say, you know, call my name, you know, obey Loki. And, you know, the crowd went nuts. Um, I, I, uh, saw a, I saw a video of that on YouTube, and a, a friend of mine commented he was surprised that uh, the guy escaped with all of his clothes on. It looked like <laughs> the, the fans were about to storm the stage and carry him off. They just went crazy. Exactly, exactly. You know, like Hugh, Hugh Jackman was there uh, to promote Wolverine, and as always, they, uh, they, they, you know, they always ask him, are you going to sing as Wolverine? And, you know, he's on the panel and he's singing like, you know, I pop my claws or something. I mean, so, so you see they're, they're, they're doing things in these panels that are becoming more and more theatrical. Mm-hmm. They're more and more of an experience. And I can see, and as they get, you know, as more people sleep out, the bigger the experience. So it's a, this, this escalating uh, um, system, I think. So, so, I, so initially... I was like, you are absolutely nuts. And I think they still are nuts. But I, I understand a little bit more about why they're doing it, why they're sleeping out to get into this panel. 
I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio, and today we have comics review editor Heidi McDonald telling us about San Diego Comic-Con. And Heidi, so what is the comic book presence there? (laughs) Well, like I say, inside this showbiz spectacle, second to none, there actually is a really great Comic-Con, and uh, there was panels. I was on six panels. Uh, one of them was about, I did a great panel on, uh, comics and libraries with, uh, Karen Green of Columbia, um, Dave Roman, the creator of Astro Academy, um, and, um, uh, you know, a couple of other really great librarians who will kill me when I don't remember their names. Uh, but anyway, we talked a lot about library services and digital lending, um, very informative, very well attended. I was at another panel that was about Superman and his uh, the legal battle of Siegel and Schuster uh, to regain uh, their rights to to Superman over the years. And I was very I was asked to moderate this panel. Very lucky to have uh, Jeff Trexler, who was an IP lawyer who writes very frequently about uh, comic book IP cases. And Brad uh, Rica, who just wrote a book called Superboys, which is a really amazing biography of uh, Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, the creator of the creators of Superman. And um, I, I mean, you know, I moderated it, but I, I thought I, uh, I was able to, uh, you know, Jeff and Brad just, you know, rambled on uh, amazingly informatively about about things that happened. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's two things that I, that was things that I saw with my own eyes, but, uh, (laughs) so many great creators there. Um, like I said, Kazuo Koike, uh, great Japanese writer. Um, Dave McKean, the the cover artist of Sandman. I mean, Neil Gaiman was there talking about the new Sandman books he's doing. Um, uh, uh, Lisa Hannawalt from Drone Quarterly. I, I, you know, there's cartoonists, uh, from all over the world are there. Uh, and if you just were a little bit patient and, and uh, looked at the schedule, you could get your book signed by many of the greatest cartoonists who ever lived or go to a panel and hear them speak. And uh, so I, the, the comics on sale were really great. I mean, even in our Sally in a small press area. So, so, you know, if you squint a little bit and, and walk around and just <laughs> kind of uh, put in your earplugs, maybe, maybe wear binders a little bit so you don't get distracted. Uh, you could find really great comics there. And, and uh, Calvin Reed, who is the uh, senior news editor for Publishers Weekly, and I just put up uh, a, a big story with, with a lot of the news for Publishers Weekly. Um, and, uh, you know, you can follow along. There's a digital comics imprint called Monkey Brain that is distributed by Comicsology, And they announced five new books, including one that is uh, about a Ren Fair detective. You know, who solves mysteries at uh, at Ren Faire. So uh, <laughs> I think that that could have a big crossover appeal. Um, but there's a lot of people were talking about original digital comics, and uh, one of them won an Eisner Award, the Oscar of the comics world. So um, going to San Diego is really you you stress, you plan, you have nightmares about it, and then you enter this blender chamber and you're shaken up for five and a half days or four and a half days, and and then you come out and you're sort of like, wow, what happened? And you kind of post-traumatic stress disorder flashbacks over the next week. And then, then you're sort of like, oh, that, that's what really happened. So. so there's a lot of talk about movies that are being made from comics. Are we seeing any uh, sort of transmission of concepts the other direction? Are there comics that are being influenced by movies or that are reincorporating the sort of movie version of, of the comic book universe? 
Um, well, um, yeah, I mean, that definitely happens. I mean, I think a lot of cartoonists watch movies and, you know, are definitely influenced by the visual style. I mean, two of my favorite cartoonists, uh, one's named uh, Francesco Francavilla, and uh, he is an Italian artist, but he draws this really amazing pulp style. He's doing a, a book called The Black Beetle, which is very much influenced by pulp covers and, and pulp art, but, uh, you know, also noir movies and um uh, that's coming out from Dark Horse. It's really beautiful. He is totally one of my favorites. And um, I'm really like Mike Mignola continues with his Hellboy comics. Of course, he has his own distinctive vision. But, you know, I think after people watch the movie version of Hellboy, I think there's sometimes a little bit of a crossover. Of course, the number one example would be The Walking Dead, which is an absolute phenomenon at this time. There was a huge boost for the video game. And there was also... I was really sad I didn't have time to do it, but you had to stand in line like an hour. But it was like a, a the prison set from uh, the TV show. I mean, it was small, you know, it was like 20 by 20. But, but what you got in there, and they had people dressed as zombies, and you could kind of stand there and get your picture taken, or it'll make a little movie of you, with, you know, in the prison yard with zombies. And <laughs> so, you know, I, I mean, I think uh, to use a horrific buzzword, uh, Transmedia. I mean, I, there's got to be a better, less hated word for for this now. But you know, I think we're just looking at a world where all media are totally influencing each other, and uh, not, you know, nothing's in a vacuum anymore. Uh, you know, you read the website, now watch the TV show. You know, and uh, I mean, one of the announcements that to me was very interesting was that uh, Chuck Palahniuk was there on a panel, and he announced that he's writing a sequel to Fight Club, but it's going to be a graphic novel. And he doesn't have a publisher yet or an artist or anything. He's still in the process of writing it. But, I mean, just his thinking about the story. And it takes place in the future with uh, with Tyler Durden and uh, all the rest. And uh, just the fact that he's thinking about this story in terms of telling it as a, as a graphic novel, uh, to me, is just fascinating, you know. So um, it's a very exciting place to be. I mean, you don't always – there's like a uh, – a river of enthusiasm and creativity running through Comic-Con. And sometimes you get a little piece of it and sometimes you get swept away, but, but you definitely come out of it with a, with some, it's like a vision quest of, of uh, tchotchkes. Well, that's fascinating. And I'm sure that by the time he got done describing that, there were probably agents or editors or, <laughs> or publishers in the audience who scribbling notes call Chuck Palahniuk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for that uh, overview of the show. Is there any other big comics news that came out of it that we should know about? Um, I, I think everybody was avoiding having huge comics news because they knew that it would be overwhelmed by the fact that Hugh Jackman was singing in Hall H, but, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, I think, uh, you know, comics are moving forward. Comics are doing well. Uh, the medium is strong. So, but anyway, yeah, thanks Rosa, Mark. Thanks for, thanks for having me on the show. It was a pleasure to be able to, to blather on about it. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Heidi. Much appreciated. And hopefully you'll recover soon from this uh, in- incredible experience. It sounds like sort of the, the Disney ride of, of inventions. All right. Well, thank you so much. That's it All for right. today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwklyradio on Twitter. We would love to hear from from you. 
You can find this and every episode of the Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside scoop on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 